Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome back to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. This has been a big week for news out of the Middle East, with President Barack Obama in Washington orchestrating events. On Tuesday, the president made a television address from the Oval Office to mark the withdrawal of US troops from Iraq. Then on Wednesday, he hosted a White House dinner to mark the beginning of a new round of Middle East peace talks, and we'll be looking at both events in a moment. We'll also hear an interview with the FT's West Africa correspondent about the run-up to Nigeria's presidential election. There would need to be serious guarantees on the day that the security forces will protect people rather than participating in a ringing exercise for people to risk their lives to go and vote in an election where, from, from past experience, their votes won't count anyway. And we'll finish this week's show with a look at the worsening drugs war in Mexico. I'm joined in the studio now by David Gardner, our international affairs editor, and by David Blair, our Middle East and African news editor, who spent quite a lot of time in Iraq in the early stages of the war. Let, let's look at uh, Iraq first. David, I mean, as somebody, David Blair, as somebody who'd spent quite a lot of time following the Iraq war, does this feel like a momentous moment? Yes, I think it does. The fact that the Americans are no longer conducting combat operations, their troops now are limited to a relative handful of bases, generally on the periphery of major cities. It doesn't mean, of course, that Iraq is stabilised, but it does mean that America's involvement is very clearly coming to an end. Is it really that clear? I mean, there's still 50,000 troops there. I mean, if Iraq fails to stabilise, isn't there a risk they'll get sucked back in again? There is a risk. But I would imagine that even if things spin out of control in Iraq in quite a serious way, the Americans will still do their utmost to stay out of any serious fighting. David Gardner, I mean, obviously a great deal now depends on the internal Iraqi political process, whether they're capable of somehow breaking this logjam, which seems to be preventing them from forming a stable government. How does that look? Not good. Where are we? We're six months after the elections, still no visible sign of a coalition coalescing, uh, much less, if if I could put it this way, a, a sort of broader national contract on the terms under, under which uh, the various ethnic and religious groups would live together, no doubt in some loose-ish confederal, perhaps, arrangement. But the things that, for example, the surge was supposed to create the political space to resolve, such as the division of revenue, principally oil revenue, the constitutional arrangements under which, in particular, the Kurds would live, all that has not been resolved in any way. If anything, it's probably going backwards. Why is it proving so difficult? I think that there, there are a whole number of reasons. I mean, you have to start with the fact that Iraq, following the invasion, following the war, the occupation and the civil war that followed, is very much not only a broken state, but a broken society in which up to five million people have been displaced internally and abroad. That's, that's a broad part of the Iraqi middle class. It's professionals, it's engineers, it's teachers, it's doctors uh, scattered to the four winds. And 
the political class that is currently operating in Iraq was largely imported, came in behind the tanks, as it were, and have set out essentially uh, treating the state and its incipient institutions, such as they are, as booty uh, for their own factions, for their own sects, for their own militias. Now, too much of that is still very, very present, and the personalities involved don't appear inclined to compromise on what they regard as their turn on the throne. I mean, it's a pretty depressing picture, and... uh... I was trying to think, well, is there anything good one one could say to the Americans as they pull out or, or to the world in general about the state of Iraq and sort of ticking off or right, scribbling down things? Well, the violence is down, the economy is growing, the oil is pumping, and for all its dysfunctionality, this this is a, a democratic system, a system that has held elections. Are those are straws I'm clutching at or are, are those, those real achievements? David Blair first and then David Gardner. I think the the beginning of institutional strength in Iraq is perhaps the most important of the achievements that you list. However, I still think that you probably are clutching at straws in the sense that the the problems that David has listed are still there. And in particular, the loss of so many middle-class, skilled people is probably a loss that's irreversible. Even if Iraq were to stabilise, these people probably aren't going to go home. David Gardner, I mean, I, I gather you share that pessimism. So what will Iraq look like in three, four years' time, do you think? Well, I think just just going back to what you were saying earlier, I mean, you know, first of all, the, the economic picture. I mean, it is still the case that they're pumping less oil than before the invasion. It is still the case that there's less electricity available than there was before the invasion. Partly, that's due, no doubt, to increased activity uh, comparing Iraq now and Iraq under sanctions. But the question of democracy, which is central, I think, the the problem here is that It hasn't had... I mean, I I don't think anybody can gainsay the courage of the Iraqis in turning out to vote, as opposed to the absolutely dismal performance of the people in whom they place their trust. But the demonstration effect of democracy is unfortunately having rather the opposite effect. I think people who around that region, around the Arab countries, who greatly admired, were mesmerized by this process of democracy going ahead, of regular elections and so on and so forth, now think, well, is that what it leads to? That's most unfortunate. And the other thing, of course, is something which was perfectly predictable before the invasion, the proliferation of jihadism that Iraq has triggered. You know, it remains a problem for the region as a whole. And there are plenty of uh, uh, failed and failing states, of which Iraq is currently one, failing, such as Yemen, such as Somalia and so on, in which these people can base themselves and incubate their brigades and so on. And it is, unfortunately, one of the paradoxes of this that the main bulwark against uh, the proliferation of jihadism is actually mainstream Islamism which has also you know, had an enormous shot in the arm as a result of this adventure. OK, well, uh, thank you very, both very much for those views on Iraq. Now, many people have said, well, the real key to the Middle East, the, the game-changer, if one wants to use that cliché, is not really Iraq, it, it's, the, it's the Israeli-Palestinian issue, and that if somehow one could get a peace settlement there... Uh, It would be great in its own right, but it would also have important effects around the region. We saw this week an effort to get uh, talks restarted in Washington, uh, this banquet and uh, 
reasonably friendly appearances between uh, Netanyahu and Abbas, the Israeli and uh, the leader of the Palestinian Authority. David Blair, I mean, we've seen many peace efforts fail before. Is there any reason to be more optimistic about this one? In a word, no. Um, The central problem remains, as it has always been, the concessions that both sides would have to make uh, in order to reach a viable agreement are politically impossible. I mean, for example, the core of the Arab-Israeli conflict is the future of Jerusalem. For there to be a viable agreement, there has to be some arrangement to share Jerusalem between two national capitals. If Benjamin Netanyahu were even to hint that he was prepared to divide Jerusalem, he would politically be dead on arrival. He probably would be out of office almost instantaneously. There are mirror image examples on the Palestinian side. So neither leader has very much room for manoeuvre. In fact, their room to do anything at all is very limited. So why are the Americans doing it? I mean, uh, has, has Obama not worked out that it's all going to end in failure and eat up a lot of his time? Well, this is a finely balanced argument. Is it better to have a process that goes nowhere at all? Or is it better just to not bother? Uh, and th- there is a, a really finely balanced argument. Um, you could argue that having a process that's futile merely raises expectations, which then get dashed, which causes more violence. Arguably, the four Israelis who were killed on Tuesday night outside a settlement near Hebron are the first victims of the new peace process. You could make that case. But then on the other hand, uh, Bill Clinton, who thought about this question very deeply, would always justify America's involvement by saying, well, it acts as a restraint on the two sides. It reduces the level of violence. Fewer people die. And from an American self-interested point of view, it reduces anti-American sentiment because at least the Americans are seen to be trying, even if they don't succeed. David Gardner, there is, of course, a risk that this this latest effort will be the most short-lived yet, because if the Israelis uh, don't agree to extend the ban on uh, settlement activity, which so many people say they've never really respected anyway, but if they don't even formally agree to do that, the talks could be over within three weeks. Well, they could indeed. I mean, I, I don't see any realistic possibility of, of any type of advance if the, the essential issue on the table is the division of land in such a way that would make a future Palestinian state viable and connected up. And the Israeli project of colonizing that land just simply bulldozers ahead. Now, clearly, there won't be much to talk about if that is the case. Whatever remains of President Mahmoud Abbas's credibility, and there's not much, would evaporate the instant that he continued in those talks under those circumstances. Now, but going back to your earlier question, why is Obama trying this? I would assume the picture that he looks at is this. There really is very, very little time left to resolve this on a two-state basis. The consequences of not doing so could spell the end of Israel and its delegitimization internationally if it became this different class of citizens' entity between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea, a sort of apartheid state, and that American national interest is very much tied up in this. General Petraeus caused there to be, through Uh, his advisers fanning out across the region, uh, inputs suggesting that this problem was putting at risk America's position and indeed its troops across a a range of countries, including, of course, Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. well, one thing we can usually be sure about the Middle East peace process is it seems to go on and on and on for years and years and years. So I'm sure we'll have many opportunities to return to this subject and discuss it. And who knows, perhaps in slightly more optimistic terms at some point. Let's hope so. But for the moment, uh, David Blair and David Gardner, thank you both very much.
And now to the Niger Delta and the political climate as preparations for the presidential election in January get underway. Nigeria's president, Goodluck Jonathan, is expected to announce in the next two weeks whether or not he'll stand for re-election. Tom O'Sullivan caught up with the FT's West Africa correspondent, Tom Burgess, to ask him what the atmosphere was like in the Niger Delta and whether or not Goodluck Jonathan has so far kept his promise to bring peace to the area and to allow for free and fair elections. I'm in Yenago, which is the, the, the capital of Bielsa, one of the smaller states of, of the Niger Delta of the oil region. What we're seeing here is a scramble for control of the patronage systems. Goodluck Jonathan was the deputy governor of this state. Then he was catapulted into the presidency. Now, in his own backyard, he has a governor, Dempsey I to I, and they have different bases within the state. Now, what's starting to happen here is that we're seeing political violence. The amnesty we've had for militants, that is holding more or less. What is worrying people here is that this political game with the elections coming is starting to see rival groups emerge in university competencies, in criminal gangs, seemingly doing the bidding of the politicians, although the politicians deny this is happening, but what, they, what no one can deny is that there have been four or five now political attacks, bombings on houses, uh, people targeted, and the potential for this to destabilise the, the, the state is very troubling. Now, you mentioned the amnesty there. That was essentially that was introduced to try and prevent militant attacks against the likes of Shell and, and other oil companies working in the Delta. The political violence you're talking about here looks much more domestic. I mean, is that what we're seeing played out here, the sort of people are positioning uh, for, for positions of power after the elections? The worry is that the, the militant activity, the armed groups, the, the famous groups, the Ateke Toms, the Tom Polos, these warlords, they really started as election-rigging gangs uh, when the military gave power back to, back to civilians in 1999. What happened was that politicians and members of the elite in this so-called democratic era started to arm groups to make sure that in the Delta they would be able to win the elections. Now, these elections rarely actually occurred. They were ballot-stuffing exercises. They were fixed. But what happened was... After the elections, the politicians said to a lot of armed young men with no jobs, right, thanks, go back about your business. What followed was the long period of certain oil war, as it's called, and then massive attacks on oil infrastructure with cut production by 40%. The amnesty seems to have dampened that for now. There's still a lot of activity going on, even if the attacks have fallen. The worry now is that that cycle of, of political funding around elections to militant groups could restart. Tom, the other thing that, that um, Goodluck Jonathan has pledged uh, as president is that the elections in January will be, will be free and fair. Now, there's been a long history in Nigeria of um, question marks over elections, uh, including the last one. Is he going to be able to deliver that? And in terms of his own personal decision about standing, what will actually stand in his way? Why would he not stand for a second term? The argument, even from some of Goodluck Jonathan's backers at the start of this year, was that for Goodluck Jonathan to deliver Nigeria's first credible elections, he would have to be a referee. He couldn't be a player. He would have to oversee the process and then, in a blaze of glory, deliver free, fair elections, stand aside and take the international applause. Now, somewhere along the line, that changed. Allies of the president say, well, there's, there's no other candidate who could do the job well. Goodluck should be given a chance. There are lots of reasons. Goodluck Jonathan insists that he will hold these free, fair, credible elections, and he's appoint, appointed Professor Jager to run the Electoral Commission. He's a very well-respected man. The problem is the most well-respected man in the world would have a very difficult time dealing with the logistics of a country of 150 million people. They're trying to do some of the most high-tech elections in the world, a biometric system. No one 
anywhere has been able to do in this short length of time. Lastly, Tom, um, as I said, you're, you're in Bayelsa State. Are people there aware of the impending election or are they, there's a, an amount of cynicism because of what they've seen in the past? There are flickers of satisfaction that uh, an Ijo man from, from the Delta's main ethnic group, the country's fourth and largest, is for the first time in, the, in Nigeria's history at the point of taking the presidency. However, talking to people on the street uh, of Bielsa yesterday, Bielsa is still a very fearful place. There would need to be serious guarantees on the day that the security forces will protect people rather than participating in a ringing exercise for people to come out and vote, to go out of their house, which is, generally speaking, by Elsa, a tin shack, risk their life to go and vote in an election where, from, from past experience, their votes won't count anyway. That was Tom O'Sullivan talking to Tom Burgess in Bielsa earlier today. Finally, to Mexico, which once again seems to be staggering under the brutal violence unleashed by the country's war on drugs. I'm joined in the studio by John Paul Rathbone, our Latin America editor. John Paul, first of all, just give us an idea of the scale of what's going on, because the kind of numbers of people being killed is quite staggering. The headline numbers are very gory. Last week's discovery of the 72 bullet-ridden bodies is the worst massacre since... um, Calderon launched his government offensive almost four years ago. And during that time, 28,000 people have died, which is a horrific number. To put it in some context, though, Mexico's homicide rate is actually um, about 10 per 100,000, which is less than Colombia, less than Venezuela, and about a third uh, the rate in Brazil. Host of... That makes me feel better about Mexico or worse <laughs> about Brazil. Mexico is cursed in the famous phrase as being so, so far from God and so close to the United States. So the fact that it is near the US lends a higher profile to the headlines. So how should we see it? I mean, is this kind of uh, violence, I mean, clearly horrific in its own right, is it a, a threat to the Mexican state? Is it getting worse? One way of looking at it is to compare Mexico, say, to Colombia 20 years ago. And in both cases, both countries took a sort of indulgent view, perhaps, to uh, drug smuggling. And for a long time, they could afford to. Uh, And then a bit like a frog sitting in water that you heat it up, eventually the the water boils and the frog dies. So you you can't really tell when the problem has moved from one you can have the luxury of ignoring to one that is too late to do anything about. Certainly in some areas of of Mexico, the state is in retreat and uh, the narcos... Uh, run quasi-governments and even provide social services and no doubt, as in Colombia, have a kind of Robin Hood-style profile in local communities. Most of the violence is in the north, but it is spreading and it's also compromised the police and because of that the army has been sent in and the risk is that the army could now become compromised as well. So it's not um, at the moment a kind of systemic risk to the state as it became in Colombia, but I think it's fair to say that the problem is getting worse, um, although you could argue that the increasing violence is symptomatic of the fact that the Mexican government is having some some success. I mean, I guess that's the key question. Does the Mexican government know what it's doing? Did it know what it's doing when it launched the war? And has it learned? Has it, has it improved its tactics which give us to give us some hope that, well, they'll eventually bring this under control? Again, it's, it's a case of the political elites in Mexico rallying around to the cause and taking it seriously. And I think if and when that happens, uh, which will take an immense amount of effort, Mexico will probably be able to deal with the problem 
you know, very effectively. One fundamental problem Mexico has in dealing with the drug problem is, this, is the nature of its uh, police force, which is spread across thousands of municipalities. Uh, each of these local police forces can be picked off, as it were, by, by, the, by the narcos. They're easily corrupted. There isn't really an effective federal force. There isn't really an effective state forces either. So one lesson from Colombia is to unify uh, these police forces. John Paul, thank you very much for now. That's it for this week. In the coming weeks, I'm sure we'll return to the Middle East peace process and to the Mexican drugs war. But for the moment, I'd just like to thank both Davids in the studio, John Paul Rathbone, and Tom O'Sullivan and Tom Burgess in Bielsa. World Weekly was produced by LJ Filatrani. Till next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.